Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 186 of the podcast for September 19th, 2013. My guest today is my good friend John Miller, CEO of Kaizen Institute. He's also a longtime blogger at the site GembaPantaray.com. Today we're going to be talking about his upcoming book, which is titled Creating a Lean Culture, Align the Organization, Achieve Breakthrough Results, and Sustain the Gains. I can't believe I haven't had John on the show before. Uh, Hopefully this won't be the last time as there's uh, lots to talk about and hopefully you'll have some good follow-up questions uh, for John to post. Um, You can go to the page for this episode at leanblog.org slash 186 to post comments, ask questions, or to find links to John, the book, and everything he's involved in. In this episode, we're going to talk about a number of things related to Kaizen culture. What are artifacts of uh, such a culture? What are some of the core beliefs in a Kaizen culture? And we're also going to talk about, and I think this is you know, really interesting based on John's um, upbringing in Japan, what are some of the core beliefs and behaviors that are, quote, not natural Japanese behaviors, unquote, as he talks about in the book. And what are the implications of that for us doing this work in other countries? Um, so great episode coming up here. And as always, thanks for listening. Well, John, hi. It's great to finally have you as a guest on the podcast. Thanks for taking some time to talk today. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. So since we, we haven't talked before, and it was it was my faulty memory, I thought we had had you on the podcast before, um, we're going to talk about your book and uh, some of the ideas there. Can you maybe start off um, talking a little bit about your background, because I think you've got a real unique background about um, how you got involved with uh, with Kaizen. So if you can introduce yourself a little bit for uh, for the listeners, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, I'm John Miller. I'm currently uh, CEO of Kaizen Institute. Uh, I was... Introduced to Kaizen actually 20 years ago this September, Interesting, interestingly enough. Uh, being born and raised in Japan, I, I, have the, I was uh, given the gift of uh, being able to speak, read, and write Japanese as well as English. So in 1993, I began working with consultants. Uh, many of your readers will be familiar, listeners will be familiar with the Shingijutsu Consulting Group, mm-hmm. uh, ex-Toyota Autonomous Study Group, Ono Students. Uh, very uh, unforgiving, tough, uh, good teachers, but uh, unique style. So I, I was lucky enough to be their interpreter and translator and, and sometimes guide and so forth uh, for probably seven or eight years and learned Kaizen, TPS, Lean, Kaizen process, etc. Good and bad, you know, what to do, what not to do as a consultant. A lot of, a lot of stories there. I learned that, and then in 1998, I thought that uh, – uh, I could do some good to the for the world to uh, begin taking what I had learned and teaching it to small and mid-sized companies, Kaizen and, and Lean. It wasn't even called Lean back then. It was, I don't think the books had come out, so it was Kaizen or whatever it was called. And um, and I started up a company called Gemba Research, which uh, did pretty much the same type of thing I'm doing now in terms of consulting and training and, and Lean, uh, as well as beginning to take clients to Japan on uh, benchmark visits to Toyota and other companies, and did that until about uh, three years ago. Kaizen Institute came calling and uh, talked about working closer together. We cooperated on a couple of minor things, but uh, the conclusion of it is that we merged our two companies so that uh, our U.S., Chinese, Japanese, uh, and uh, let's see, Singapore operations 
of Kaizen Institute as well as um, Gemba Academy, which was another joint venture mm -hmm. that we worked on. That became part of Kaizen Institute. We rebranded uh, the, all the business units, all the countries, teams, etc., into Kaizen Institute. And uh, ever since, I, I was asked uh, in 2000, middle of 2011, after the merger, to uh, take over the global uh, CEO role to uh, help all the all the groups work together and work with clients and so forth. And so that's been I've been doing Kaizen within Kaizen Institute to the best of my ability for the past mm -hmm. couple of years. Yeah. So that's my that's my background. Yeah, and you've been involved in a number of, of book projects with uh, with Mr. Amai and, and and publishing some of Mr. Ono's work. Um, but today we're going to be talking about uh, a book that you're um, co-author of, I believe, for the first time. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But uh, a new book, Creating a Kaizen Culture. It's coming out later yes. this year, correct? Yes, it's coming out in mid-October. At least yeah. it'll be in the warehouse then, and then uh, it'll get to the bookshelves or into the yeah. mailboxes sometime in November, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, the publishing supply chain. That's a, that's a different discussion as well. But <laughs> uh, um, I'm, I'm excited about the book, and I had the chance to uh, take a look at um, some of it in advance here. Um, you know, before we delve into some of the more detailed topics, um, g give us an overview of of the book. What some of the, you know, why why write a book? What some of the main themes are, and and, and who your co-authors are. Yeah. Okay. Let me introduce the co-authors, and then wh where we got the idea for the book, how it evolved. Uh, Michael Blesky is one of the co-authors. He has a, a blog, uh, gotboondoggle.com, I believe it is, and he's been active in. Lean and Kaizen for probably close to 25 years. He started out working at uh, Batesville Casket, Casket Company, uh, also known as um, uh, Hillrom. Mm -hmm. And of course, Japanese consultants, including uh, Mr. Shigeo Shingo, he was, uh, he was lucky to learn as an industrial engineer about uh, the basics of, of SMED and TPS from Mr. Shingo. And, and over the years, Mike has gone on to, to become internal lean director for a company. So has led companies on the lean lean journey, lean transformation. He's award won the uh, top ten best plants award from Industry Week several times, um, and he's working now for with us for uh, for Kaizen Institute. He's one of the directors of our uh, U.S. and Canada operations. So he's very experienced, a big believer in Kaizen, and hands-on experience for years and years. Uh, Jamie Villafuerte, he's currently Lean Six Sigma director at Jabal Circuits, where uh, he's one of the leaders of trying to bring that big company, big and growing company of 60-plus plants worldwide uh, into the lean culture. And so he's he's on the front lines of that and seeing the, the successes and challenges of it. And he's also somebody that i uh, worked with for, for many years. And so we, we got to talking about um, we should do a book that's not been done, that's really needed. And so that, that was something about Kaizen, and it became – how to do Kaizen. It started out as something fairly practical. Let's do something in great detail that's very practical, never been done. So then as we got more and more into that, it became, well, that's really the human aspect of it and the change and the, the culture and the emotional aspect of it and the leadership of it. And by the time we got, got around to pitching the, uh, the idea to the uh, publishing company, McGraw-Hill, it, it evolved quite a bit from something very practical to, I won't say what we, what we wrote is impractical. It certainly can be, can be used, but it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it developed quite a bit into an interesting direction. I think it was the publisher that, uh, challenged us quite a bit in the, in the brainstorming process and the proposal process and helped us really hone in on this message of, of Kaizen culture and why culture is important and how Kaizen helps organizations 
become able to change and adapt and and uh, and, and in fact how how they how they how, how the best companies do that by really fully engaging and making the best out of the capabilities of people so we thought uh you know, we thought that's something worth writing about and Certainly, it needs to be practiced, even though it isn't a step-by-step guide to Kaizen events or to anything, anything sort of tactical like that. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I would agree with the assessment that yeah, the, the book is very practical. Um, both, yeah, I, I think there's a, a good track record of people who have read your your blog and, and Mike's blog. You guys were both uh, pretty early into uh, into the blogosphere, so you guys have certainly done. A lot of writing and, you know, the, the, the stories from, from Jabel and other companies that were in the chapters I read, um, certainly, you know, a diverse mix of examples that, um, you know, kind of emphasizes Kaizen. It's, it's, it's not theory. It's a very real practical practice and, and there's great examples and, and quotes from people in there. The, the Jabel story I thought was, uh, impressive on the, uh, Kaizen participation that they have. Um, so there's a lot of practical things in the book, and I mean, we, maybe at the risk of, of getting theoretical here, I mean, I think there was some really interesting stuff in there about um, about core beliefs, and I guess this is maybe getting a little bit into philosophy, but I think a lot of people focus on tools, um, what you were describing as artifacts, you know, lean methods, lean tools. Um, can you talk about why you think these these beliefs are important and I think you were making the point, and if you can expand on it, that artifacts are a result of the beliefs. Can you talk yeah, about sure, that? Yeah, sure, happy to. Mm-hmm. Happy to do that. So i first like to say that if you can get through the first chapters of the book, first four, four or so, three or four out of ten, then, then the rest of it is uh, smooth sailing for the typical uh, reader of lean books. Uh, and I think we go, first chapter is really talking about culture, second is talking about culture and the theoretical framework, working off of uh, Professor uh, Dr. Edgar Schein and his work. And then second chapter is really to explain what Kaizen is and its true meaning and dispel some myths. Third chapter gets into the core beliefs. And what the core beliefs are, if, if you study Dr. Shine's work at all, uh, he's, he's got a three level, uh, explanation of organizational culture. At the base is what we call basic assumptions or beliefs. We call them core beliefs. The next level is something called espoused values, which are more visible in, in terms of actions and things people say that they believe in and, and actually demonstrate. And then the top level of the pyramid, if you will, is the, the artifacts, the things that you would see in a culture. So these are things like 5S, tape on the floor, visible examples and the under, underlying beliefs that lead to those actions and lead to those visible mm-hmm. artifacts or examples. The tools can be, can be the, you know, the SMED exercise that can be both a behavior and an artifact. So it's not exactly uh, a bright line, but the key idea is that a lot of people focus on the tools way too much. Artifacts, the visible things, they copy an end on, they copy a U-shaped cell, they copy a Kanban card, and they think that gets them a result. Or slightly better than that, they understand that we have to have standard work, you have to have auditing behavior to support workplace organization, etc. But rarely do people talk about beliefs. Do we really believe that our people have good ideas. Do we really believe that it's important to go out to the floor and deeply understand our process before making changes to it? Do we really believe that that people have anxiety and we need to create security and safety in the sense that it's okay to bring up issues? And and, and in fact, not only do we believe that, are we are we behaving in that way? Are we are we supporting those beliefs with our behaviors? You can say you believe it, but if you act and do the opposite, clearly it's not a deep enough. It's not a what we call a core belief. So we, we sort of framed culture, organizational culture, we called it the ABCs of 
organizational culture, top level A is artifact, B is behavior, C is core beliefs, and uh, borrowed from, uh, again, Dr. Shine and applied it to what most people are experiencing or seeing in, in some of the challenges of creating a culture and a lean transformation. And people talk about culture, culture, but until now it's been abstract. It hasn't really been broken down, so I was really uh, happy to run across uh, Dr. Shine's work a few years ago, but mm-hmm. thinking about it, presenting it in, in different environments to clients, and thought it's a good time to begin writing about that and how, uh, how you can use Kaizen to practice the tools and get the behaviors and then really reinforce the beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but as we talk about later in the book, you can't just fake your way through it. You've got to actually examine your beliefs and decide that you're really in this. And, and uh, if you're not, it won't work either. Yeah. So that's that's where the leadership part of it and the readiness part of it comes in. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether people can consciously choose to change their beliefs. I mean, I'll just tell a quick story. I mean, like somebody reached out to me today, um, you know, complaining about, and I think rightfully so, um, you know, uh, an, an awkward or misguided Office 5S initiative where, um, in, 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 in that, that parlance, uh, they, they were being forced to use artifacts. So they were literally having to tape off things on their desk and they were told you can only have three personal items on your desk. And, you know, it's not, it didn't sound like it was helping them do their job any more effectively. And I started thinking as I was reading your material, like, it almost seems like one of the underlying beliefs is uh, our employees are children and they can't be trusted and we have to tell them what to do, um, which which goes against, you know, Kaizen. So, I mean, if you've, if you've got an organization where that's the starting point and, and leaders say, uh, we, we want to become a culture of continuous improvement, we want to be a quote-unquote lean culture, um, I mean, have you seen examples where, where some of those underlying beliefs – or, mm-hmm. or yeah. can change, or how optimistic would you be that that people can change those core beliefs? Yeah, I think you have to start with uh, sort of a the price of entry is that you have to really believe that process and results are both important. So a lot of companies do lean and lean six sigma kaizen because results are important. Mm-hmm. The leader wants to see results. They don't care how you get there. And the worst case of that is that you have companies cheating, lying, stealing, mm-hmm. yeah, doing bad things, and hurting other people to get the results. So we want to stay clear away from that and at least have, you know, neutral, non-harmful processes to get good results. But ideally you want good processes to yield good results because you can have a, a strong culture based on a history of success, based on really being in the right place at the right time, being lucky and not able to change, adapt, survive. And that's really what a lot of American manufacturing was, the stronger American manufacturing companies were uh, post-World War II. Because huge market, a lot of resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can say that they got lazy. They, they weren't focused on continuous improvement, but it was the fact that they had cultures based on an experience of success by not really having to focus on process too much. They got results fairly easily. So what we have to do is to go back and first believe that process and results are both important. And you can only believe that really through experience or through just say, okay, you, you convinced me. I'll give it a try. Uh, but basically it's the idea that luck alone. You know, past past success doesn't guarantee future success. And I think everybody in the last 20 years, 30 years have seen dramatic changes in, in all kinds of economic, social, political conditions, environmental. So they realize that uh, past is not the future and you need a good process to get through it. In terms of what the, can you really change your beliefs, take going to that 5S example. I think that's a great example because it's it's so visible and it's, it can be so painful like you described. 
adults need to know why they're being asked to make a change. Mm -hmm. Children do as well, but if you tell a child just do it, they might be frustrated, but to some degree they'll do it and uh, the parent is uh, well-meaning and that's, that's, that's the case. Adults, they want to know what does it, what does it do for me? How does it make my job easier? Uh, do I have a say in it? So when you just say only three items on your desk, well, why? Why three? Why not two? Why not four? So you have to go back to the beliefs and say, do we have, do we agree on the core beliefs? The core beliefs are that we make problems visible and it's, it's safe to do that. So it means we don't clutter our desks. It means we have standard locations for things because when something's missing, that hurts our customer. And we want to serve our customer. We want to serve our internal downstream customer. So you have to have that kind of conversation first, or not first, but let's say in tandem with mm-hmm. the discussion of the tool, employ the tool. Because employ the tool then becomes don't think, don't challenge me, just employ the tool because I've seen it work other places and we don't have enough time or bosses pushing us to get results. So process and results. And process is the process of change we're talking about. And that's really getting people uh, to think about why. Agree at that core belief level. Yes, we do believe that uh, exposing problems is important. So as a person that works in this workstation or desk, let me help you design a good way to do that, regardless of how many family photos we have on our, our desk and so forth. So I think that's, that's the place that um, you have to start from. You have to start from... A few of these core beliefs that are really fundamental, sort of a, having a humble curiosity, being uh, being willing to willing to challenge the status quo and look deeply in your process, believing that people have good ideas, and trying some of the kaizen practices, daily kaizens and so forth to to test it. Don't just don't just read the book and believe it. Test it. And if it's not true in your organization, you have to go back and ask why. If you say it's not true for all of humanity, then you know, give me a call. I beg to differ. I think you can. You can find that these beliefs are true because many companies have succeeded, and uh, we, we try to share share the stories of some of the companies in the book. Yeah, and you, you talk also in the book, just building on something you said um, just now about the idea of well, don't read it and just believe it, but go go and test. Um, can you talk a little bit about the advice you have in the book about um, getting started in that way of, of doing some tests and and uh, perhaps starting small, or uh, is this like doing a pilot? Um, what, what, what are your thoughts if somebody, if a leader says, "Okay, I've got these beliefs, and, and this is a line, and I, I want to transform my culture. Uh, why, why shouldn't I start by having everywhere across the company doing kaizen tomorrow? Is that is that risky, or what? What, what do you find? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess again, it's process and results. It's what you want to achieve, and how much time do you have to do it? If you need drastic change, if you're if you're on, if you're let's say uh, in a triage mode, or if you if you need emergency uh, help, then there's a certain way to approach that, and that you can learn from that, and you can begin to change your culture that way. If you're making money, doing fine, want to really bring your culture to a, another level of performance, and you have the resources, and you have a believing management team, then you can roll something out fairly broad, yeah. but. If you spend money on something and it doesn't work, typically what happens is people get fired, people get embarrassed. You said that didn't work for us. You don't try it again. So it makes sense to try things that you can you can you know, can test, you can sample, mm-hmm. and then you can adjust. So again, plan, do, check, act is not one huge project. It's many projects of various sizes, and you start small because times times a waste. And mm-hmm. what can we do today, next week? Can we do it with one group, and then when we learn from that, you apply it to two and three and Talk about exponential propagation. You know, yeah. that's 
create great people that are believers, that are influencers, you know, start with the top 50 influencers or, or believers or leaders and, and get that group excited and then bit by bit expand it. And, and then when you're ready to, to take it organization wide, again, reflect on yeah. what you learn in the first pilot phase or first plant, first plants, first wards, first offices, wherever, wherever you're starting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think and you raise an interesting point that it, it depends a little bit on the circumstances. Um, I was rereading last week a little bit of, um, the book that, that you were involved in, in updating um, and getting out there uh, a couple of different times in the last few years, Taichi Ono's Workplace Management. And there's one one point where it kind of jumped out at me. Uh, ono said uh, something like, uh, the best time to do Kaizen is when times are good. And I, I thought about that and I stopped and thought, well, in, in healthcare generally, times are not good. Times are challenging. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of um, you know uh, financial pressure and otherwise. Um but you know, I think you know, kaizen is, is certainly possible, even if it's not the ideal circumstances. I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a good point. He certainly wasn't saying if times are tough, don't do kaizen. <laughs> yeah. saying, do them when times are good, because when times are tough, you won't be able to to do them, and that's yeah. when you need it most. Yeah. But when you're when you have the time, when you're able to do it, then that's when you can use it to grow. That's when you can do it with more. Uh, more slack or more more room to uh, room to grow room to to learn when you when you really have your back against the wall you have to you have to make cuts that are brutal sometimes to to survive to keep the organization going and to to reinvest in, in the people and the products and the customers you have so if times are good do kaizen and i think that's uh, he says he also says you know your wits don't work unless you feel the squeeze mm-hmm. unless you're really challenged you know creativity doesn't come unless you really have tough times so those seem like a contradiction, but I think he's saying you have to give yourself a challenge. If your if times are good, this is the best time to do it. So go out there and create a challenge and force yourself to cut your space in half or inventory in half or do something really drastic because otherwise the times will change for you and you'll be left without the ability to respond. So, yeah, hospitals, times are tough. Times are tough now. Lots of organizations. So start Kaizen now because there's never a better time than now to at least start, start in some small way and, and don't and don't ever stop. I mean, don't give up because times are good. And if you think, well, times are good, I don't really need to do this now. Then, you know, well, hopefully, hopefully, when times are less good, uh, you've saved something up and you're still able to reinvest in it. Yeah, and I think you know, when times are tough, uh, it comes back to the belief you mentioned and you, you talk about in the book uh, around safety and security. Um, what? what if, be curious if you can expand on that. Why is why, why would you say safety and security is, is a core Kaizen belief? What, what does that translate um, into, practically speaking, or what, what's an artifact of that belief? Yeah, it's a good question. At one level, you could say the, the end on lamp or even 5S or any kind of bottom-up problem solving is an example of the environment where it's secure to raise problems, mm-hmm. secure to challenge the standard. Nobody's going to get blamed for bringing up a problem. At Toyota or at a company that has true Kaizen beliefs or a lean culture, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. because they say, thank you for bringing the problem. Now let's, let's work on solving it together. And, and, uh, that's, that's key. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't happen without that. You have to have open and honest relationships and communication. Uh, and visual controls are an artifact of that. Uh, you know, I think Deming said, uh, and, and the practice of rewarding business on the basis of price alone. Mm-hmm. So if you have a more collaborative, 
pricing structure or pricing behavior, whatever the output of that is, some kind of a cost savings, mutual cost savings based pricing uh, contract, that would be an artifact. I mean, that you wouldn't think of that as an artifact. It's not a typical lean tool, but instead of beating up on your, your vendors, if you say, I'll help you, and when we both work together and are able to uh, improve your process and reduce the cost of this, pro- this product or service and you know, let's pa- pass on some of the savings to me and, and that's an agreement. And that's uh, an example of a business-to-business safe and secure environment as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, a win-lose type of situation. So I yeah. think those are, those are a couple things. There's any number of other things. I mean, a smiling face in a factory, if it's a natural smile and there's a comfort level there mm-hmm. and you know, there are people aren't looking down and looking away in a, in a hospital if nurses aren't all overstressed and people are able to stop a doctor and raise something as an issue and they're not yelled at or, you know, the kind of horror stories you hear. And yeah. If those things aren't happening and if they're saying, yeah, thanks for bringing that up or let's, let's write it down, let's discuss it. Those are the types of things you want to see. Those are the visible artifacts you want to see. It's a problem, problem solving, problem exposing, problem discussing type of culture because problems come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And if you hide them, they get bigger and uglier and lead to, uh, lead to less pleasant things. So I think that's really the core idea there. It's not to say, Job security no matter what. It's mm-hmm. to say honest communication, raise issues right away, improve together continuously. Yeah. Now, one other thing I, I was hoping we could explore a little bit. Um, you talked about in the book the idea that some of those core be- beliefs um, maybe don't exist in every Japanese company or that they're, I think the phrase it uses, that they're not necessarily, that they're not natural Japanese behaviors. And, and I heard the same thing from uh, the guide from Kaizen Institute, um, you know, the, for the trip I was a part of last year where they were saying, you know, it's not a natural, uh, Japanese behavior to want to, to speak up. And that's where the Andon cord is, is so very helpful. Um, can, can you maybe elaborate on your view, having grown up in, in, in Japan, um, how some of these things are, are not natural Japanese behaviors. Because I think it's so often an excuse people in the in the U.S. or other countries might say, well, yeah, this Kaizen stuff must be easy in Japan, but we're different, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question, and that's really one of the main main messages or one of the main myths we wanted to blow up about Kaizen being so Japanese. For example, one of the core beliefs is that good things happen when you understand your processes deeply through observation, scientifically gathering data, and so forth. That Japanese are famous for that now, right? But 50, 60 years ago, they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the. They didn't have a clue, mm-hmm. you know. And that's also because prior to World War II, industry was was beginning. But 18 what 1860s, 70s, they were still in the samurai age. There were and swords, maybe pistols, but not a lot of advanced manufacturing technology. It was never part of their culture. It wasn't part of their history. They just didn't develop that way. They were a closed country, literally. Mm-hmm. To the outside. So that wasn't part of their history or culture. Uh, they were learning, they were studying, but it wasn't there. Those artifacts weren't there. The, there was, I think there was a, a, a developing belief in scientific progress, but they were also very traditional people. So you didn't have those behaviors. You had craftsmen who believed in quality through years of practice. And these are people building cars and making parts. So Ono had to deal with creating standards around machinists who, who believed that only they knew best and just the kind of things you still might hear in a in a uh, traditional business is that you can't standardize what I do. It's a craft. It's art. Mm -hmm. You hear that a lot in healthcare. You hear that a lot in software development and other types of environments where artistic work and one by one, you have to understand your process and respect the art, value the art, develop it. But that wasn't a natural 
thing in Japan you know, 50, 60 years ago, and they learned and developed it, and won't say perfected it, but they've gotten it to a place where it's it's uh, something we should all try to learn from and, and copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think certainly acting with urgency isn't necessarily always a, a Japanese quality. The unfortunate situation with the nuclear reactor in northern Japan right now is a uh, is an example. I'm sure they're acting with what they consider urgency, but for goodness sakes, we're we're pouring poison into the ocean, and we have a nation full of leaders and scientists who are saying, "Well, let's 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 keep this problem hidden, or let's say let's not talk about it too much." You know, that's that's a Japanese behavior. Something smells, put a lid on it. That's a Japanese expression to, to say, you know, "Don't stick your don't stick out, or you'll get hammered down." That's another Japanese expression. So, uh, keeping. Keeping everything on the down low. Don't don't look too good or too bad. Don't cause embarrassment. And these are these are things that go against sort of the open, safe, trusting, understand, act, you know, yeah. do kaizen kind of a culture. It doesn't mean that they don't improve, but you know, Japanese companies can move very slowly. Japanese bureaucracies can move very slowly, as we're seeing. So those are just a couple of examples. I think certainly in terms of respecting individuals, teams, and so forth, and, and nurturing the potential of, of people. That's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a universal Japanese value, but their society is very close knit many ways. And it's, it's a society that's been around many hundreds of years, speaking, speaking the same language and with the same identity where the United States is more of a patchwork of different languages and cultures and grown up over a couple hundred years and civil war and all these things. So yeah. there's a lot more diversity. It doesn't mean that there's no respect for people, but there's a different identity. And, and there was a civil war, like I said, there. So there was a disrespect for certain, certain people of certain races by another group of people. So I think that's, you know, these are, these are different, uh, uh, different things in their history, in different countries' history that each country has to look at it and say, which part of this is our company culture? Which part of this is something that's more widely in our society? And we really need to overcome it in order to, to develop our, uh, develop ourselves and our, and our team and our business and our, ultimately our country towards it. More, uh, more successful, more adaptive society, let's say. Great. And maybe a final question here. Um, if people are thinking about their own organizational culture and where, where they are today, um, in the book you talk about organizational readiness for Kaizen and continuous improvement. Um, what, what's your advice about how to gauge that readiness or how, how important or how, how ready can ready be? Before um, before moving ahead, what, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, good question. I think certainly there's a certain amount of preparation and, and talking to peer companies and do's and don'ts, reading of books and so forth. A certain amount of education that any organization should do. Uh, I think the top management has to understand what this is and that it's a long-term commitment, a long-term journey. Uh, it's process and results, it's people and, and KPIs and improving both in tandem. It has to be linked in with what we talked about before, which is do we have a, a safe, stable, secure environment or are we going through all kinds of turmoil in terms of management change and reorganization and layoffs? That's not a good time to, to start something like this. Wait for the dust to settle or begin the planning now, but don't do this in the middle of it because you, you know, you aren't behaving as you want to as you want to because circumstances don't allow you to or you have to do some painful restructuring in the moment. Uh, the middle management is one thing we talk a lot about. I think changing the, the behavior of middle managers. Middle managers basically 
fairly wide definition. And anybody from frontline supervisor up to maybe, maybe not senior executives, but, you know, vice presidents, people that, people that have the most behavior change to go through and may have, may perceive that they have the, the least to gain, most to lose from working in a new way. People that may have gotten to their positions by seniority, maybe by towing the line, not necessarily by, you know, challenging and, and, and developing people and you know, managing in a really more progressive way. And so now people are in these positions, they have a certain amount of authority and they're, they're being told that people that work for them are going to challenge that, challenge the standard, maybe not challenge them personally, but sort of blow up the process and look at it really, not, not, not explode it, but you know, blow it up as in, uh, magnify it, look at it under a microscope, really question things. And that's uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable for anybody. But for the people on the front lines, finally, we listen to them and their ideas are used. So that's great. People on the top are seeing engagement. They're seeing results. They're seeing rapid change. They're understanding the processes better because they're more visual and they're mapped out. And those people in the middle, I think that's, that's where you have to really spend the time and, and bring them along, uh, make sure they're ready. And some people may, may never make the, make the transition. I mean, it's emotionally taxing. It's not an easy thing. It's, it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's, it's valuable. It helps you grow as a person. But if you're at that point in your career where you say, yeah, I recognize this is good, but I don't think I, I can make it through the next five years of change, then those people may take a position that uh, they may leave or they may take a position that doesn't get in the way of the change that is to come. I've seen lots of examples of that, of people who yeah. were counseled out of positions where they could be in an uncomfortable position or they could be obstructing the, the change to come. Uh, but they can certainly mentor people that are coming up. They have a lot of great process knowledge. Uh, one of the other biggest obstacles we talk a little bit about is just organization structure. There's been a lot of what's called delayering or mm-hmm. taking out layers of management and increasing spans of control of frontline leaders and managers. That can really be quite uh, non-constructive because you, you limit the ability of people to coach frontline workers, train them, develop them, do problem solving. And what looks like a cost savings on the labor side ends up being a, a larger system level waste in terms of quality, productivity, and so forth. And again, that's not, don't take my word for it. You know, try it out, study it, benchmark other companies. But um, now there's some, some good things to do there. So I think you have to look at what changes will we need to make? What snags will there be if we're not ready to change organization structure, if we're not ready to counsel on or move on or help certain leaders uh, grow through the process. If, if really you think this is more about changing things and not about changing people, then you can, you can let's say, start with Kaizen and, and Lean and Six Sigma and all those things, but there's a good chance that it won't sustain or that you'll run into some known obstacles. So I think it's mostly about just being aware, being smart, not saying don't start if you're not uh, not ready, but just be, be open about it and say mm-hmm. we're starting. We know we have some challenges. We want to work work through them. But and don't tell people. Don't don't hide those things from people because people figure it out. It's pretty obvious. People read. People can figure it out on their own if they uh, if they just look around and say, well, this will never work if we don't change this, and that'll never happen. Right. That's really what people are saying when we say it'll never work here. They're not saying we don't believe in the scientific approach will work in our process. They're saying, from a people point of view or from an incentive point of view, our leadership will never change those things. It's too embedded or what have you. And that's that's the culture part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I think regardless of, you know, people's readiness, um, at, you know, when they start reading your, your upcoming book, Creating a Kaizen Culture, 
I feel pretty confident they'll they'll feel more ready after after reading the book and all the great stories and examples and um, you know, thought provoking ideas that are there in the book. So I'm really looking forward to the book coming out. Um, people can go read your blog in the meantime, uh, GembaPantaray.com. Um, lots of great stuff that you've um, always been posting there. Um, so I want to thank you, John um, John Miller for being a guest today. Do you have any, any final thoughts or uh, ideas on how people can, other ways people can find you online? Uh, you can reach me if you go to www.kaizen.com and fill out one of the forms and send an email. That'll come through to somebody here. If you just put, uh, if you ask for me or put my name in the subject line, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll get to me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, J Miller, J M I L L E R underscore Kaizen. So you can tweet me and we can have a chat that way. Uh, so yeah. Or LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. So. Okay. Well, good. John Miller with no H, J O N. So. J O N. Yep. All right. Well, John, thanks uh, so much. I'm, I'm glad I could finally have you as, as a guest and uh, hopefully we can uh, have some future chats talking about Kaizen. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Mark. I enjoy it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm excited to announce the release of the audiobook version of my new book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation. Listen and dive into powerful insights on fostering growth through mistakes. Whether you're a leader, entrepreneur, or just trying to get better at learning from mistakes, this audiobook is for you. Get it now on Audible, Amazon, and Apple Books. Visit mistakesbook.com for more info.